there is a sense in which people have always been talking about the church of Christ. If you just think about it from this standpoint, the Bible says the church is a part of the eternal purpose of God, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11. And because that's the case, in a time far beyond what the human mind can imagine, God, the Godhead, the triune Father, Son and Holy Spirit, were having conversations and discussions about the church that belongs to Jesus. The prophets litter their writings with things about the church. It's coming. It's establishment and how to function. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 and passages like Isaiah chapter two, two through four. And then Jesus in his first sermon before the Sermon on the Mount says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the apostles follow suit throughout the New Testament. First Timothy three fifteen, talking about the church of the living God. And yet all of the talk about the church through history <laughs> hasn't always been positive. In Thessalonica in Acts 17, as Paul and Silas and Timothy get there, the Bible says in Acts 17 and verse 6 that some individuals are saying these individuals, these Christians have turned the world upside down and they've come here as well. In Ephesus, in Acts 19 and verse 23, it said there was a great disturbance about the way. And when you get to the end of the New Testament or the end of the book of Acts, Acts 28, 21 and 22, when Paul finally gets to Rome, after all of his travels and his shipwrecks, he gets the leading Jews in his rented house. And they say to him, Paul, we've never heard of you, but we know that this group, this sect has been everywhere spoken against. When you compile all that information, two things rise to the surface. The first is the church has always been talked about, whether that's good or bad. And the second thing is there have always been misunderstandings about the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. It's just always been that way. And there's a sense in which I guess it always will be. You know, when people find out I'm a member of the church, sometimes I'm asked questions. They'll say, well, what is the church of Christ? What are you guys religiously? Or y'all are the church with no music, right? Or what's up with y'all in baptism or do y'all think you're the only ones going to heaven? I'm going to be transparent with you about my religious upbringing and how I was brought to Christianity as I see it. I went to all sorts of churches. As an adult, I was never a member of any church. I would go to the church that was nearest to me. I wasn't raised in churches of Christ. So far as I know, nobody in my family was ever raised in what we call today churches of Christ. I was in college in 2009 and I was invited to a worship service just like this one. And up to that point, I had believed that all churches were pretty much the same. I mean, they had some differences, maybe different sides of a different coin. But in the end, they're all pretty much the same, doing the same things. And I studied the Bible with the preacher and was baptized for the forgiveness of my sins, according to the New Testament, just like it says, and became a member of Jesus's church. And from that point up till now, as I've studied the New Testament, it's become apparent to me that the way the Bible speaks about the church of Jesus Christ and the way people and even sometimes Christians Talk about the church is really two different things altogether. What I want us to do this morning is just to notice what the Bible says about the church that belongs to Jesus. And that's how I want to say it. The church of Christ, the church that belongs to Jesus, just like the Bible says. And let's talk about what the New Testament teaches us and what everybody in the world should know about the church of Christ. This sermon is not a church of Christ commercial. It's not a church of Christ Christ pep rally where we're going to get together and talk about how right we are and how wrong everybody else is. The things that I hope we talk about today are objectively true. These are things that are true about the church, whether or not you and I are members of it, whether or not anybody is, no matter where you're from, what you believe, whatever you practice, these things are always going to be true. These are the things about the church that the New Testament gives us that everybody in the world needs to know whether or not they're a member of the church. These are things people need to know about the church of Christ. I hope that as we study together, our view becomes God's view. Because we can't speak accurately about the New Testament church until we start to echo the words of the New Testament itself. And so let's begin. Number one, 
The Church of Christ has Jesus as its foundation and its founder. As Cooper read for us a moment ago, he called it two scripture readings. I'm good with that. I thought it was just one together, but two is fine. When Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi or into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, you remember Matthew 16, 13 and 14, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And they gave various answers. Some say John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And after they struck out, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And in Matthew 16 and verse 16, Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, based on that rock solid foundation and confession, I will build my church. Matthew 16, 18. And the gates of Hades, the bars of death won't stop me because he'd rise from the dead in three days. Jesus promised to build his church to be the founder and the foundation. The church that belongs to Jesus Christ is not built on the foundation of any man or any group of men. It stands alone on who Jesus is. And so 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 11, Paul says, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He has the only name by which individuals can be saved, Acts 4 and verse 12, and the only name worthy to be adorned by a religious group of people that call themselves a church because he purchased it with his own blood. Now, this point is sometimes taken for granted. Somebody says, "Okay, all churches are built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. I mean, generally speaking, every church, Jesus pretty much started them all. And if a person or a group of people claims to be a church, isn't it true that in that sense, Jesus is the foundation? But that's not true at all. A simple crash course through church history tells us that churches have been founded and based on men and personalities. Knox and Luther and Calvin and Wesley and cult personalities that sometimes hijack Jesus' name like Russell and Smith. Men that couldn't save anyone and are in need of saving themselves are in no position to say, well, we're going to start a religious movement and you should follow us. And so Paul in Antioch of Pisidia in Acts 13, 38 and 39, he says, By Jesus has preached to you the forgiveness of sins and through faith in his name, you can be justified from all things which you never could by the law of Moses. It all rests and stand on Jesus and who he is. When you read throughout the New Testament about the way the church is described, this becomes apparent. You know, Stephen died in the church serving Jesus Christ. Paul wrote over half of the New Testament and not one time is the church ever mentioned or referred to by their names. They never attach their names to it. Not John or James or Claudius or Phoebe. It's always Christ. It's my church. Matthew 16 and verse 18. It's the kingdom of God and of Christ. Romans 14 and verse 17. It's the church of God. First Corinthians chapter one and verse two. It's the church of the living God. In first Timothy three and verse 15. These references are far from accidental. The Holy Spirit through these inspired individuals is driving home this reality. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. He's more than just the way we get things started. He's how we keep things going. He meant what he said. Without me, you can do nothing. And that includes being a church, being my people. The church is built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. You know, sometimes people start companies and then they these founders, they get kicked out. You know, whether it's Jack Dorsey with Twitter or whether it's John Snatter with Papa John's or whether it's George Zimmer with Men's Warehouse or Travis Kalanick with Uber, maybe through some indecent act or some sort of controversy. It just happens. People found companies, found establishments, and then they're ousted because of their behavior. That'll never happen with Jesus's church. The people that belong to the church of Jesus Christ never have to worry about their founder being put out. Sometimes people that adorn the name will disappoint him or a group of people that once identified themselves by the name of Jesus Christ can cease to reflect his glory. But when that happens, Jesus turns out the lights in that place. But nobody shows him the door in his own kingdom that he died to purchase with his own blood. 
Christians should remember this point. We stand on the foundation of Jesus Christ and he will never give you a reason to walk away from his church. Remember, you are not converted to other Christians. You're converted to Jesus Christ. The church rests on his foundation and the reality of who he is. And we need to greatly appreciate that. Jesus is the foundation for his church. When somebody says to you, if you're a member of the church, well, what's the church of Christ all about? The answer should always be Christ. No Christ, no church. It should always be Jesus Christ. He's not just the founder. He's the focal point. No Christ, no church. And the New Testament says the church is all about Jesus and who he is. Now, here's number two. Everybody should know that the church of Christ is the answer to Jesus's prayer. Turn your Bible to John chapter 17. Turn your Bible to John 17. This is the section of John that's sometimes referred to as the shadow of the cross. Chapters 13 through 17, right before Jesus goes to the cross to die for the sins of the world. In John 17, he's praying. In verses 1 through 5, he prays for himself and the glory that he received from the Father in finishing that work. In 6 through 19, he prays for the apostles. But then in verse 20, down through the rest, he prays for you and me. See, Jesus knew that his apostles would go out and preach the word. And those of us who weren't eyewitnesses would believe in Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, the only reason why you do is because you believe the inspired testimony of the apostles. And notice what Jesus prays beginning in verse 20. Neither do I pray for these alone, but for them also, which will believe on me through their word. That's you and me. That they might all be one as you, Father, are in me. And I knew that they also may be one in us, that the world might believe that you've sent me. If Jesus says something one time, that's important and significant. But throughout John 17, he mentions this several times. Look at verse 11. He says, I want them to be one, Father, just like you are with me and I am with you. Look at verse 22. He says, I want them to have the glory that you and I share together and that they may be one. And then he doubles down or triples down in verse 23. And he says, I want them to be perfectly united in oneness. So in what way you say, well, the church of Jesus Christ is the answer to Jesus's prayer for unity. How? Because Jesus says, I'm going to go down a cross. And when I rise from the dead, everybody who believes in me, I'm going to put them in my family, in my church, in the community of the saved. People from different backgrounds, different age groups, different nationalities. And everybody in the world will have a better picture of what I'm all about because these people are united. It's the answer to what Jesus prayed. I didn't follow you here this morning, but chances are from where you live to the church building, you probably saw several churches on your way. Conservative estimates. Gordon Conwell Seminary did a study. Conservative estimates have the number right now around 30,000 to 45,000 different denominations. That's a long way off from one. And somebody said, well, wait a minute. There's no way that every church everywhere can agree together. And I'm not really sure that's what Jesus means. The problem with that statement is this. Jesus was not praying for the impossible. Nor was this just wishful thinking. Jesus was praying for exactly what he wanted. And that is for people that believe on him based on the apostles teaching to be united in one. Psalm 133 and verse one, the psalmist says, oh, behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity, to be unified, to be about the same thing, to be together. That's what Jesus prayed for. And the church of Jesus Christ, as he establishes it in his word, And as we practice New Testament Christianity is the answer to that prayer. Listen, you spend a lot of time in your life praying to God if you're a Christian, begging God and hoping that things that you want align with his will, as you should. You want God on occasion and there's nothing wrong with this to give you the things that you want. When we become members of Jesus's church, we give him what he wants. We can be the answer to Jesus's prayer. We want Jesus to answer our prayers. Jesus says, how about you be the answer to mine? How about you all just throw off your labels and your division and your groups and be perfectly united in one? 
You see, the New Testament drives at this point. The church was always meant to be singular in nature. It was always meant to be that way. This isn't a strange or a new idea. It's what God always wanted. Turn your Bible to the book of Ephesians. Look at Ephesians and notice how often Paul refers to the church and he uses this metaphor that the church is the body. But he's going to say some things throughout the book of Ephesians that make this point apparent that the church of Jesus Christ was always meant to be singular. Look at Ephesians chapter one, 20 and 23. He says Jesus is head over all things. He's put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church or for the church's benefit, which is his body, that he might be the fullness of him that feels all in all. Now go to chapter two and notice verse 16. In Ephesians 2 and verse 16, Paul says Jews and Gentiles are reconciled to God in one body. There's one church and one family. Notice chapter 3 and verse 6. Ephesians 3 and verse 6, Paul says this is the mystery that Gentiles should be fellow heirs and members of the same church or the same body, the same one that the Jews are a part of. And then in chapter 4 and verse 4, for good measure, Paul says there is one body. There's one church. That's not Church of Christ doctrine. No group of men got together and said, you know, it'd be a good idea if we preach it this way and teach it that way. It's as old as the New Testament on your lap, because the church of Jesus Christ is the answer to Jesus's prayer. It's exactly what he was begging God for in the garden. And instead of saying, well, Christians should just agree to disagree. Sometimes Jesus says, I want you to agree to agree. I want you to stick together and work out your differences because I prayed for it. And the unbelieving world is counting on it. You know how many people we've talked to? I know you've talked to people who've said, I just don't get you Christians. One God, one Bible, one Jesus, 45,000 different denominations. You surely can't all be right. Listen, denominationalism says either one of two things. Either one, we can't know the truth or two, the truth doesn't matter. And Jesus says, I'm praying that you be united. If a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom can't stand. And if a house be divided against itself, that house can't stand. Mark 3, 24 and 25. The church of Jesus Christ is the answer to his prayer. Imagine a father who started a barbecue business and he's on his deathbed. He puts out all the nurses and puts out hospice and brings his four boys into the room. And he says, guys, I'm on my way out, but I want you to do something for me. I need you to do something for me. I want the four of you to stick together. Keep the family barbecue business together no matter what. You can go and establish it as franchises and other places. In fact, I would encourage you to do so. And I want you to make sure that you hand it off to your children and to their children, whatever you do. Don't break up the barbecue business. You keep the business of the family together. And what if they do that for about 10 years? And then one of the brothers says, you know what? I'm going to do subs. And another one says, I'm going to sell Mexican food. And another one goes ahead and he starts a pizzeria, a pizzeria, and he's selling pizza. And what if you say, well, listen, they're all still selling food. And in fact, they all may be even using some of the same business savvy principles that their father taught them. But question, are they honoring the old man's request? Jesus says that you might all be one. How does 40,000 sound to Jesus? Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered and being made perfect. He became the author of eternal salvation to all those who obey him. Hebrews 5, 8 and 9. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I'm telling you? Luke 6 and verse 46. If we want to answer his prayer, we'll be unified. This is a warning for Christians, too. We don't have God's permission to break off and splinter and divide every time we get upset with each other or every time I don't like the way this is going. I'm just going to start my own thing over here. Jesus says, stick together. Be unified because you represent me. What everybody in the world should know about the church of Jesus Christ is it is the answer to the prayer that Jesus prayed. And don't we want to give him what he wants? You know, Americans spent almost twenty five billion dollars on Valentine's Day. 
Collectively, not individually. Some of y'all are looking like I married a cheapskate. No, collectively. <laughs> Listen, why do we do that? It's not because we're obsessed with balloons and chocolate and flowers. We did it because it's just sensible to try to give the person that you love the things they delight in and desire. And Jesus says, do you really love me? John 14, 15. Keep my commandments. You are my friends. If you do whatever I command you, John 15, 14. And Jesus prayed for unity. Now, here's number three. Everybody should know that in the church that belongs to Jesus Christ, love is the chief aim. It's what the church is all about. In John 13, in that same section, the shadow of the cross, look at John 13, 34 and 35. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. As I've loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all men know that you're my disciples if you have love one toward another. Jesus says, this is what I want from you. I want you all to love each other. And in the church that belongs to Jesus, in the church of Christ, love is the chief aim and what the church should always be about. It's not one of the things that the church does among many. It is the thing. Jesus says, this is how people are going to know that you belong to me. And sometimes people are on two opposite sides. There are some people religiously and they say things like, well, listen, Hiram, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to love people. I'm not going to get tied up in the weeds of doctrine. Jesus says love. That's all I'm going to be about. I'm a loving person. And I just think God will sort out all the religious details in the verses. I'm a loving person. And then you've got people on this side. They say, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm about doctrine. And I'm going to study the Bible and parse out the verbs and words. And I'm going to find out what God wants me to do. And I'll let the mushy people over there worry about love. And what if it's possible to do both? Jesus says not only is it possible to do both, we must do both. Love one another just like I loved you, John 15 and verse 12. Because in the church that belongs to Jesus, we don't get to decide. They said, Jesus, what's the greatest command in the law? 613 Old Testament commandments. And Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37 through 40. He says, you don't get to choose. I want you to be about love. The New Testament doesn't just tell us as members of Jesus' church to love one another with a pure heart fervently, and it does, 1 Peter 1, 22. It doesn't just say let brotherly love continue, and it does that, Hebrews 13 and verse 1, but it says something even stronger than that. Turn your Bible to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's writing to Timothy in a book that's heavily about doctrine and about teaching and about what we believe. But notice 1 Timothy 1, 5. You might, I hope you already have this one underlined or highlighted or circled or whatever you do, because this is one of the big ones. 1 Timothy 1 and verse 5, notice what Paul says, the end of our commandment. If you use the old King James, it says the end of our commandment. Newer translations have the aim of our charge is what? Love from a pure heart, a good conscience and a sincere faith. That word, the end or the aim, whatever your translation has, it's a Greek word, telos. It means the purpose, the goal, what we're really all about. Okay, what is it? I want to know what's next. Paul says, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. It's what we should always be about. The church of Jesus Christ, love is really what we're all about. We exist to show God's love to a world that desperately needs it. You remember what Jesus said, let your light so shine before men. That's plural. Collectively, we let our light shine so that people will see our good works and glorify the Father which is in heaven. That's what Jesus wants us to do. In Jesus' church, the chief thing is to make sure we show love the same way Jesus has shown toward us. People should never come among us and say, you know, they really love the Bible, but they don't really like people. Well, they know a lot of verses, but it was kind of cold and stuffy in there. In the end, the major thing that we should be about is love, because that's what Jesus says the focus is. Listen, everything Jesus says is important, but you don't want to miss this one. 
What a shame to succeed in everything else. James Clear says one of the most invisible ways to waste time is to do a good job on things that are really unimportant to ask. And sometimes we do that. Listen, what if you got straight A's in all the spiritual electives and you flunk the mandatory seminar on love and never graduate to glory? Paul says in Galatians 5 and verse 13, brothers, you've been called to liberty, but don't use your liberty as an opportunity to serve your flesh. But by love, serve one another. The whole law is summed up in this one commandment. You should love your neighbor as yourself. Somebody says, are you saying the whole Bible is about love? No, I'm saying that's exactly what Jesus says. It's the royal law. James two and verse eight. Every time we read and study the Bible, either love for God, love for neighbor or a combination of the two. When somebody says to you, what's the church of Christ all about? The answer is Jesus Christ. What do you guys do? What are you all about? The aim of our charge, the goal for us should be love. A researcher writing for the Atlantic magazine, he did a study. He called it the most comprehensive global index of love. He surveyed 136 countries. I don't know how he figured this out or what were the basic tenets of his research, but he concluded in the end, the country that shows the most love in the world is the Philippines. Rwanda was second. Puerto Rico was third. The United States, we were 26. Not last, but we could do better. He says these are the most loving people in the world. If you want to be loved, you go to the Philippines. I wonder if he did the same study with religious groups, where would we rank? I mean, if he just lined up religious groups and said, "Okay, if you really want love and you're looking for spirituality, go among these people. I don't know what he would find, but you know who should be in first place without a doubt. Or we fail our master. Churches of Jesus Christ. It's what we should be about. It's the thing that binds us together in perfect harmony. Colossians three and verse 14. We don't have a choice with this. It's mandatory. We sing a song sometimes. They'll know we're Christians by our love and they will. First Peter two and verse 17. Love the brotherhood. And that's who we should be. What everybody in the world needs to know about the church of Jesus Christ is love is our chief aim. And here's the next one. Scripture is the standard. Every church says, well, we follow the Bible. But in the church of Christ, it should be different. Paul says in Second Timothy three, 16 and 17, all scripture is God breathed. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What this means is Jesus knew he was going to give his apostles all of the truth. And he did. John 16 and verse 13. And they wrote it down. And as we follow what they wrote, we solidify ourselves as the people of God. John 17 and verse 17. Jesus says, set them apart by your truth. Your word is truth. You'll know the truth and it'll make you free. John 8, 31 and verse 32. In the church that belongs to Jesus, scripture is the standard. Well, what does that mean? It means you can't say, well, I don't think that's a big deal. And I really don't care. I don't think Jesus would care if we change this. Or, you know, we probably should be doing more of this. And maybe it isn't in the Bible. But, hey, surely God would be okay with it. God has co-workers, ambassadors and servants, but no editors. God doesn't need anybody to fix his word up or change it. He begs us simply to comply with it. So what that means is when you think about the church that belongs to Jesus and you say, well, what are people going to do to be saved? What should people do? We should do what the New Testament says. And what is our worship service going to look like? You know, sometimes members of Churches of Christ say, well, listen, I think our worship's kind of stale. We do the same thing over and over and over again. And I would say, take your complaints to God because the New Testament says what we do in worship. Now, can we do it with more vigor and more spirit and more enthusiasm? Surely we should. But should we modify what God said? Absolutely not. Every first day of the week, we should take the supper just like they did. Acts 20 and verse 7. It's not for weddings and funerals and Easter. It's for Christians on the first day of the week. We should give of our means every first day of the week, just like they did. First Corinthians 16 and verse 2. Freely sacrificial giving. 
We should sing praises to God without musical accompaniment because Christians never did that. Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, along with 400 years of church history, says nobody ever introduced a mechanical instrument of music into Christian worship. We are the instruments. Worship was never meant to be a concert with specialized performers, but instead Christ-centered praise engaged in by every member of the congregation. It's exactly how God set it up. We should pray and preach just like they did, Acts 2 and verse 42. And when people say, why do y'all do that? We should say because that's what the Bible says. Scripture is our standard and we don't have God's permission to tweak it or to change it, but simply to submit to it. The church of Jesus Christ says, you know what? Your word's the standard. We love the Old Testament. We study the Old Testament, but we don't have dual citizenship. We're not under the old covenant. It's for our learning, not our law. Romans 15 and verse four. And so when you say to members of churches of Christ, what do y'all practice and why? We're going to say, well, the New Testament says this. And Paul wrote this and John said this. And we're trying to be faithful to what God says. Here's the next one. In the church of Jesus Christ, everybody is welcomed and invited. God wants everybody in his church. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Acts 2 and verse 21 has Paul, Peter saying the same thing in the first sermon. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. In the church that belongs to Jesus, all are invited. This is what this means if you're a member of the church. It means if you're a member of Jesus' church, you've got friends, you've got neighbors and family members, they're all invited. And God's already invited them, whether we do this or not. It means if you're not a member of the church of Jesus Christ, you're on heaven's most wanted list and he wants you in his church. I talk to people and sometimes they say, well, Hiram, listen, I'm this. I didn't grow up church of Christ. I'm that. And Jesus says, I don't care about man-made labels. I want you to shred those things and come into my family. I want you to be a part of my family. And guess what? Everybody in the world is invited. You think about Ivy League schools. Think about Harvard and Yale and Columbia. They turn away more people than they accept. The standards are high, SAT and ACT and community service hours and GPAs and IQ and intellect. But in the church of Jesus Christ, you could say the standards are pretty low. The only thing you have to do to be admitted entrance is this. Acknowledge that you're a sinner and you're in desperate need of saving and you believe Jesus is the only one who can. Just like the blind man in Matthew 9 and verse 27. Oh, son of David, have mercy on us. If that's your attitude, if that's your mindset, Jesus says, we gladly welcome you in. Everybody should know that the church of Jesus Christ is not a small cult or group for a select group of individuals. It's for everybody in the world. Doesn't matter if you're the first Christian in your family. You say, well, nobody in my family was a member of the church of Christ. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if everybody, if you've got a long heritage and a long lineage of members of churches of Christ, that doesn't matter either. Everybody in the world, Jesus says, I want you in my family. I want you on my side. I want you welcomed among me. And everybody in the world needs to know that. I think people start churches because they don't get this. Leroy Brownlow said one time, I believe everybody would be a member of the church of Christ if they just understood it. This is unity. This is where Jesus says, listen, I'm not asking you for different flavors and styles of Christianity. I've already got it covered. Come to me and I'll receive you. Somebody says, who, me? Jesus says, yes, even you. Here's number six. Entry is the same for all. When you start reading through the New Testament, everybody became Christians the same way. On the first Pentecost following the resurrection, they preached and they said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And that's exactly what people did. After that, they preached the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8, 26 through 40. He hears the gospel and he says, here's water. What's stopping me from being baptized? And he's baptized right away. In Samaria, Philip, he's not in Jerusalem. Acts 8, 12 and 13, when they believe Philip, preaching the things concerning the name of Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God, they were baptized, men and women. 
They start preaching to Gentiles and Cornelius. Listen, he's already a good man. If there was ever a man in the history of the world who could be saved without becoming a Christian just because he was a good man. Surely Cornelius is that guy. And yet Peter says, can anybody forbid water that these shouldn't be baptized? Everybody in your New Testament became a Christian the same way. Turn your Bible to First Corinthians chapter 12 and notice what Paul writes to the church at Corinth in First Corinthians 12 and verse 13. He's talking about the various gifts, but he just makes this point in passing that I think we need to appreciate. First Corinthians 12, 13, he says, by one spirit, are we all baptized into one body? Doesn't matter who we are. God has a lot of children, but no grandchildren. Everybody in the world has to be born into his family for themselves. John 3, 3 through 5. There's one body and one spirit, even as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Ephesians four, four and five. And if you're going to be a Christian, which is the same thing as saying, are you going to belong to Jesus church? Everybody has to do it the same way. Maybe you've been out of town before and you run into somebody you didn't expect to see him. And you say, well, what are you doing here? How'd you get here in the kingdom of God? You don't have to ever ask anybody that question. What are you doing here? Same thing as you. How'd you get here the same way? I did the very same thing. I obeyed the gospel. I don't know if you know what a bandwagon fan is. Do you know what that is? Somebody that just kind of sees the hype and follows along. Right now, the Denver Nuggets are in the NBA Finals. I was born in Colorado Springs, not a Denver Nuggets fan. In fact, a lot of people aren't. They don't play on TV a lot. A lot of people don't know about them. But if and when they win the NBA Finals, a lot of people will. They'll just kind of latch on and they'll be buying the T-shirts and they'll just start saying they were Joe Kick fans and they'll be fans and they'll just latch on. You know, sometimes Christianity is like that. Especially in the Bible Belt, there's just this cultural idea. Listen, college football, sweet tea and Jesus, everybody's in. Everybody's a Christian. We're just we're all in. You say to somebody now, are you a member of the church? Well, my mom was. Hey, he's not a member of the church, but his daddy, he was an elder. He's been coming here so long. We kind of just put him on the road. He's kind of he's kind of like us. And maybe he's in and bandwagon Christianity won't fly. Everybody doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter who your family is. If you haven't obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're not a Christian. You're not saved. You're not in God's family because everybody has to do this the same way. And it doesn't matter how closely affiliated we are with anybody who's deeply spiritual. It doesn't transfer over to us. We have to make the decision ourselves. Well, they're religious, but they're not Church of Christ. They did something, but they didn't do it our way. I mean, they had a baptism. Everybody, everybody. God makes no exceptions. Has to become a Christian the same way. That means if you talk to somebody and you say, hey, are you a Christian? And you say, how did you become one? You will find if it's true to the Bible, their conversion was a lot like yours. All of our spiritual birth certificates say the same thing. I was dead in sin. I was buried in baptism and I was raised to walk in newness of life. Romans 6, 3 and 4. And that's true for everybody who will ever be saved. And that's true for everybody who's in Jesus's church, the church of Christ. Now, here's the seventh and final one. Everybody should know about the church of Jesus Christ that Jesus promised to save her. The Bible talks about judgment as being individual. Everybody will give account of himself to God. Romans 14, 12. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians five and verse 10. And yet the Bible says there's a sense in which it'll be collective. Jesus will save his church. Look at Ephesians five and verse 23. Sometimes people say, well, our churches of Christ, the only ones that are going to be saved. Look at what the Bible says in Ephesians five, 23. Now, we've already marched through Ephesians and saw several things that Jesus says through Paul about the church. There's one body. Jews and Gentiles are in that one family. But notice Ephesians 5, 23. Husbands are to be head of their wives, even as Jesus is the head of the church, his body, and he is its savior. Now, here's the question. 
How many churches does Jesus promise to save through Paul's writing in Ephesians 5.23? He's its savior, the church that he bought with his own blood. And that's the only one he's responsible for saving. You see, the New Testament says in the end, he'll deliver the kingdom up to God. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 24. He's coming back for his church and he wants her without spot or wrinkle or any blemish. Ephesians 5.26 and 27. What everybody in the world should know about the church of Christ is it is, she is, the church that Jesus promised to save. Don't be confused about this. Don't be derailed about this. Don't think, well, yeah, that means like capital C, Church of Christ, like all of the religious groups. That's not what the New Testament teaches. You don't find that in the Bible. What you find is people that are saved are in God's family. There's no hyphenated Christianity. I'm this kind of Christian. It's just Jesus's family. And that's why everybody's invited. Jesus doesn't have to have a black church and a white one or a Russian one and an American one and a rich one and a poor one. He says, throw them all in the pot together. Every one of them needs my saving and salvation. And in the end, I'll come back for that family. I don't know if you go to malls or if you go shopping, but if you do, you know that if you go with your spouse, you probably should go back home with the one you came with. My wife has a pretty common name, Brittany. I looked this up last night. I was thinking about it. It's so common in the 1980s. It was the third most most common name, only behind Ashley and Jessica. There were 37,000, almost 38,000 girls named Brittany in 1989. It's a common name. We go to the mall. It doesn't matter how many Brittany's there are. It really doesn't matter how many of them could even have on the same color shirt. How many times out of 100 do you think I'm going to leave the mall with the same Brittany? That's easy math, right? And there's a lot of reasons for that. But one of them is because I know my wife. I know you look out and see religious confusion. I know you say, well, look, there's a lot of churches. He knows his bride. He knows what she, he won't be fooled. I know somebody said, well, they kind of sing like us and they do. And they've got a Bible and they do some preaching and they baptize. It's not exactly like the New Testament, but maybe he won't be confused. Forty five thousand. And yet with divine clarity. He knows the one he died to purchase. He knows the one he shed his blood for and he won't get it mixed up. He won't get it confused. And he's begging us not to either because he's left us the pattern in the New Testament. This isn't sectarian. It's far from it. It's not even saying let's be undenominational denominations. It's saying let's just pull away from all of it. Let's just be pre-denominational Christians, just a Christian. That's all I wanted to be in 2009, just a Christian. Just obey the gospel. Can I do that? Do what Jesus says and just become a Christian And don't become a part of any man's institution. The New Testament says we can. You can't preach a sermon like this one without somebody saying at the end or maybe to themselves right now, well, wait a minute, Hiram. I've got friends in different churches and they're good people. And I know good people in good places. Well, what about them? I mean, are you saying do I hear you to be saying and I'm saying to you, listen, me too. I've got friends and family members in all sorts of religious churches. I've visited all of them, many of them kind and gracious toward me. But here's what I want you to appreciate. Nobody, doesn't matter how nice they are, how good they are, nobody does Christianity better than Jesus. Nobody. Nobody knows how to run church better than Jesus. And though their efforts and their goals may come from good motives, nobody does church better than Jesus. And if Jesus has a church... If Jesus had one, surely every man that knew that would leave theirs to become a part of his. And what I'm telling you is the New Testament says that he does. And people should run out of other religious groups for life, for dear life, for eternal life and align with his. Somebody says, because it's better, it's supremely so. And maybe today you're not a member of Jesus's church. 
what we want to do is hit the target for Christians, the target of love in your heart with the gospel. And maybe one sermon hasn't convinced you, but you're in a room full of people who would love to study the Bible with you and show you just what the New Testament says. We won't add anything into it. We won't give you our interpretation where we're wrong. We're humble and honest enough, Lord willing, to change and say, you know what? We hadn't done that right. We're not experts in everything. But we want to do what's right according to the word of God. And everybody in the world needs to know this about the church of Jesus Christ, that they're invited and that he wants them there. If we can pray for you or pray with you, our aim is love. And we want to show you that. Phil's going to lead us in a song to encourage us. If you need to respond, come now as together we stand and as we sing.